Trinity United Methodist Church in Ruston, Louisiana. Our prayer is that God uses this time to speak specifically to you, regardless of where you are on your faith journey. We'd like to also invite you to worship with us every Sunday morning at 1045, either in person or online at www.trinityruston.org. Thanks for listening. So last Sunday, we made a plea for two things. If you're interested in preaching for the Oak Grove, Gibsland Charge, or for Jonesboro, we need folks to volunteer to preach. Yes, you can do it. We're having a workshop next Saturday, the 26th, from 9 to 11 in the Fellowship Hall. If you're curious, we invite you to come to that workshop, find out what all this is about. We'll share some resources, some ideas. You are under no obligation. You can walk in and be anonymous. If you have signed up to preach, this workshop will also uh, serve as the orientation for these are the things you do, like the mysterious thing of how the bulletins get from our church office to the churches where we're doing the worship services. So it'll be very pragmatic. So that's from 9 to noon next Saturday in the Fellowship Hall. Since it's a Methodist gathering on Saturday morning, donuts and coffee will be available. So I'm looking for you. And some of you I'm going to look at and I'm going to make you feel guilty until you finally say yes. Because you know you want to say yes. The other thing we asked for were golf carts. Actually, we asked for a golf cart for security reasons, uh, so Robert wouldn't have to walk everywhere. Well, not only did we get one golf cart, we got two golf carts given. Um, one is slightly used. It was only a fairway golf cart. They didn't go off-road looking for lost golf balls. The other one was is going to be brand new because of your donations. Now, what this means is, yes, we're going to start a golf cart hospitality ministry. So if you've ever wanted to drive a golf cart and you're a fairway golfer, I don't want anybody that goes off-road looking for their golf balls in the golf cart. But we're going to start helping folks get to their cars and back and all this stuff. It'll take us a little while to put that together. But if you're interested, guys, gals, licensed drivers, you too can be a part of the golf cart hospitality ministry. But thank you, Trinity, for your generosity in providing this resource that uh, we'll use to express our grace and hospitality. Our text this morning comes from Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts, the second chapter, starting in the 22nd verse. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you. As you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside of the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it is impossible for him to be held in its power. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was doing this week what y'all do. I was waiting for something and I was in this position. Or is it this position? 
Do you scroll up? Do you scroll down? I was on Facebook. I was just reading through. I was finding out what my cousins were doing, what my siblings were up to. I've got several dog pages that I have to look at cute dog stories and, you know, hope for paws, always sending me something that makes me cry and flip, 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 flip. And there was a picture of a young lady in my Facebook feed that was just coming out of a tattoo shop. And she was showing off her latest tattoo. She had tattooed a fork right here on her forearm, a dinner fork. And her picture had the story about the fork under it. The fork story many of you've heard It's a familiar story. Preachers love to tell it. It seems that there was this young woman in a certain church who was diagnosed with a very critical, turns out to be a terminal illness. And when she found out the news that her time was going to be short, she called her pastor and said, I want you to come talk to me. So the pastor shows up one day at the appointed time and they sit down together and the young lady explains her illness that she knows she's not going to get better. The doctors have given her a very short uh, window of time to live and she wanted to talk about her funeral. She wanted to talk about the scriptures to be read the music to be sung. She had it so mapped out, she even told the pastor what she wanted to be dressed in in her casket. And they talked and they cried and they prayed and they dealt with the severity of her illness, the short time she had in her request. And the pastor was getting up to leave and she said, oh, preacher, I almost forgot the most important thing. When you lay me out in the casket, I want you to make sure that they put a fork in my right hand. He said, excuse me? That's right. I want a dinner fork in my right hand. And she could tell by the look on his face, he didn't exactly understand why. She said, I want to tell you why I want this. My grandmother used to go to these fabulous dinner parties and banquets and all the things she did. And she said that always, almost at every meal, when someone was clearing away the plates, they would lean in and whisper in, keep your fork. The invitation to keep your fork meant that something better was coming. Someone was going to bring a luscious dessert as part of this meal. It's going to be a a thick, rich, glorious chocolate cake or a, a piece of substantial pie. I mean real fruity, you can dig into it pie. She knew that if someone said, keep your fork, something better was coming. Preacher, I want people to look at me in that casket and see that fork, and I want them to wonder, why is she holding a fork? And then when you get up to preach my sermon, I want you to tell them 
And sure enough, the preacher at the day of the funeral was standing close by and he would watch people pass by the casket. He looked down at her. She was wearing just what she had, had picked out. She had everything the way she wanted it. And there in her right hand was a dinner fork. And people were saying, what's with the fork? Why is she holding the fork? And so in this sermon at the funeral, the pastor got to say, as sick as she was, facing death, she wanted that fork to be a witness. And he unpacked the story of keeping your fork because something better is coming. She believed that something better was coming. So today, when you go wherever it is you go to lunch, and I know some of you are already working on that right now. I see you leaning over and t- asking your spouse, where are we going for lunch today? When you look at that fork or you're holding that fork, I want you to know that Jesus Christ told you something better is coming. And every time you hold a fork, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ promised you something better is coming. Peter preached a sermon on Pentecost and 3,000 people came to the altar and got saved. Man, that would be great. You have an altar call in the Methodist church and people go, can you imagine 3,000 people giving their lives to Christ because of this sermon? And the sermon that the early apostles preached recorded in the book of Acts, the kerygma, all has a similar pattern. The pattern is, look, Jesus was predicted by Jewish scripture. He lived a holy and righteous life and you Jews captured him turned him over to the Romans, they crucified him, but the grave couldn't hold him. God raised him from the dead, and Jesus Christ is now risen. He is not here. He is risen. He is alive. We affirmed it this morning in the Apostles' Creed. On the third day, he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the vindication of Jesus Jesus came not as a political figure. He came not to referee the intramural conflict within Judaism. Jesus saw himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah. He came to set the prisoners free. He came to bring sight to the blind. He came to bring hearing to the deaf. He came to bring healing to those who were afflicted. Jesus Christ saw him not not as one who needed to be served, but one who came to serve the needs of human beings. Jesus came as one who was not concerned with anyone's status in life. He would just hang out with all kinds of people. Lepers, sinners, prostitutes, Wine bibbers and gluttons, as the King James used to say, it didn't matter to Jesus. And he told stories about sinners coming home, about God's unconditional welcome and grace and love for everyone. He told the Jews to follow the law. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But he taught God's greatest gift and God's greatest law is the law of love. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's vindication 
of the way that Jesus did his ministry. God's stamp of approval. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the validation of the words that Jesus spoke. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you because that's just how people are. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Those words are all true. You can trust those words because Jesus spoke them. When he said to the religious leader, Nicodemus, you must be born again, you can bank on those words that no matter how religious you are, you've got to have a personal faith experience with Jesus Christ. And when he tells the woman at the well who had no relationship with formal Judaism that he was the living water, you can trust that. You can trust that Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You can believe those words. They are true. They've been validated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, the words where Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. For the one who seeks to save his life will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will save it. You can trust the words of Jesus. They have been validated in the resurrection. They are true. Not only are they truth, they are true. And you can use them and live them and be blessed by them. So the resurrection of Jesus is a vindication of his ministry and a validation of his word and a commissioning of his followers. You know, there were all kinds of messiahs roaming around Palestine. I don't know if you know that. There were messiahs before Jesus. There were would-be messiahs after Jesus. And this band, this ragtag band that Jesus had picked out, they weren't the brightest. They weren't the most imaginative. They were definitely not the bravest. But what made them different when their Messiah was crucified? They didn't hang their heads and go off and look behind another rock to find another would-be Messiah. They had heard the news and believed the word that Jesus Christ was risen. And they became almost giddy with their, their unapologetic presentation of this preposterous story that this person named Jesus was alive and glorified and they risked, and some did risk, losing their life and limb. They were intrepid voyagers and they continued journeying with Jesus all the way down to us. How did you find out about Jesus? Somebody told you. How did they find out about Jesus? Somebody told them. How did they find out about Jesus? Somebody told them. And all the way back to this first band of misfit disciples who were transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the commissioning of his followers to be apostles. That means you and me. And if we 
together are going to transform the church, if we're going to pull the church back into the path of godliness, it's going to take you doing it. You. I don't know how long it's been now since I I challenged y'all to make a phone call. That's all I wanted you to do, make one phone call. I've heard phone call stories that are so true. I wanted you to call one person, just one person who you hadn't seen in church for a while. Invite them to come to church. And there's been an outbreak of that going on. People making one phone call. And if, you, if, if inviting somebody to church is, it makes you too nervous, invite them to Sunday school. Invite them to a small group. It's less threatening. But what's going on is people are starting to come back to church. Why? Because somebody who's a member of the church asked them to come back to church. You don't understand the power you've got. More people will come to church because you ask them than if I ask them. It's been proven study after study after study. You have credibility. You know these people. You work with these people. You've shared Christ with each other. You've shared meals with each other. You're in Sunday school classes and small groups and you come and sit with each other in church. When you call, they go, ah, if I call, I'm a hired gun. They think, well, he's just calling me because he's supposed to call me. It's his job. But if you call, you call people start coming to church one guy came in my office last week that preacher I didn't make one phone call I made two phone calls and guess what happened last Sunday they were both in church good work man and what happened today in the traditional service obviously I know because I've already preached this sermon once I was sharing this story, and somebody came up to me at the end of the service. Preacher, you know, I made a phone call, and that guy didn't come to church. And right after Sunday school, I'm going home and calling him. I'm going to say, where were you? You got it? That's what we want going on. That's how revival breaks out. That's how Jesus starts moving in a church when you Realize you've been commissioned by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing for you to fear. Three things quickly I want to say. That was not an extended illustration. It's just the way the outline of this sermon worked out. Three things I want to say real fast about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's about him. Because invariably you talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the first question is what kind of body do I have in my resurrection? Not about you. It's about Jesus It's about God having power, that Jesus was raised by the power of God. Romans 8.28 is one of those misunderstood, mistranslated passages of Scripture. You know, God works everything together for good. Everything's good. Romans 8.28 in Greek, the most important words are two of them that are right there together. God works. Whatever's going on in your life, God is a resurrection God. Whatever needs to be resurrected, God can resurrect it. He, God, is able to do far more abundantly than we ask and think. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not about you. It's about God. It's about God's power. It's about God's power to overcome death in the grave. You know, that's such a 
North American thing. We want everything in scripture to be about us. How can I apply this to my life? Well, I'm going to get to the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Remember that in the Apostles' Creed? I'm getting to it. The resurrection is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Second, it's about empty spaces. Empty spaces. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We've got the birth. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. We've got the cross. On the third day, he rose from the dead. We've got three empty things that are the center of our Christian faith. The manger is empty. We love Christmas, don't you? We get, we get stuck with Christmas Jesus and baby Jesus. Manger's empty. Some folks are hung there at the cross. They're all about the crucifixion and the atonement and justification and substitutionary atonement and all these theories about how God works salvation, but the cross is empty. We've got the resurrection. We've got the empty tomb. Empty manger, empty cross, empty tomb. What does that mean? It means God does not leave calling cards except in your heart. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an open space for you to choose to believe. It's a place for you to dig in. It's a place for you to hang on, but it's a place you've got to have faith. It's a faith statement. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't believe they're talking about, it was the spirit of Jesus. I don't believe they're talking about reanimating a corpse. I believe that Jesus received a glorified body. It's a different kind of body than he had on earth. Jesus could do cool things. He walked He ate. Oh, I'm so thankful that there are stories of Jesus eating post-resurrection. That gives me hope. He told Thomas, touch me. He was physical. He could be touched. He still had the scars from the crucifixion. But he also, he would be there one minute and gone the next. And the physicists are all going, how did he do that? He had a glorified body. I believe in that resurrection that Jesus is alive, physically alive and present. And I believe that every Sunday when I see you because the proof of the resurrection, the proof of the empty tomb is the existence of the church. It's you. Third thing, the resurrection is the middle It's the middle of the story. It's the middle of history. Christ came to earth. Christ physically lived. Christ physically taught. He did miracles. He was crucified. He was raised the third day, but the Apostles' Creed says there's more. He's at the right hand of God the Father where he reigns, and the Bible says he's coming back to judge the quick, What a quaint word. 
It's basically King James that means still alive. He's come to judge those still alive and those who have died. You think about judgment as a Christian and as a pastor. Judgment is something I don't think any of us want to face. And the Bible says we Christians must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive that which we've done in the flesh. I thought Jesus got me out of this judgment. Nope. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What if judgments like this You arrive there in heaven. You meet Jesus. He says, let me show you how your life impacted others. Let me show you how a kind word helped another individual. Let me show you how your compassion gave rise to a whole generation who had faith in Jesus Christ. Let me show you what making that one phone call did for an individual. You and I here in this life never get to completely see what our faith in Jesus Christ, what our sharing of God's love and grace, what that does for other individuals But I think that's part of what it means to say that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who loved us and loves us, is going to judge us in a way that we will eternally be encouraged. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the middle of history and of your life. Are you living your life and exercising your faith as one who believes that Christ is risen, that Christ is alive, that he's dwelling in my life and in yours. Would you stand and pray with me? We thank you, O Lord, for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that the tomb was empty because Christ wasn't there. He was risen. And that that risen and glorified Christ lives and dwells with us. Oh God, let us be faithful to the resurrection truth that dwells in us in the person of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Refuge Podcast. 
To find out more about The Refuge and Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityruston.org.